At this time, we'll have the scripture reading which uh, the teaching is based, and then we'll follow by that by the sermon. Uh, today's scripture reading comes from James chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Listen now for God's word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. I'm one of the pastors at Exilic, and uh, for those of you who uh, love anything and everything regarding leadership, uh, one of the cardinal rules for good leadership is that leaders are repeaters, and so whether you're, I don't know, a parent, a teacher, CEO, whatever you might be, uh, it's important that you don't just say something once and then never say it again, but you constantly repeat things because we all suffer from amnesia. And so what we do at the top of every year is something called our DNA series, where uh, we talk about our name, our mission, and our vision. And the reason why we do this is because, uh, like any company, organization, or church, there is a tendency to suffer from something called mission creep. Mission creep is when a company or organization strays away from their core beliefs and values. And we never want to do that. And so at the top of every year, this is why we go through uh, our DNA. And so today we're going to be taking a look at our very odd name, Exilic. Uh, on more than one occasion, I've heard from newcomers say that what initially attracted them to our website or to our Sunday service uh, was the name Exilic, because what in the world does that mean? And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. And maybe, maybe just to begin, let me just say that we didn't choose this name because we thought it sounded cool. Uh, if anything, it's caused a lot more confusion. Uh, we have been called everything from Elixir to Xbox and to even Exotic Church, which is more of an oxymoron than Jumbo Shrimp. Uh, so we've been called a lots of different things, but we, we chose this name because... Uh, you know, the, the, the New Testament scholar D.A. Carson once said that uh, there are five, five major themes in the Bible, uh, the idea of a covenant, the idea of the kingdom, but one of the other major, major themes in the Bible is this idea of exile. Uh, you cannot understand the Bible without understanding this theme of exile because it is pervasive from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So for example, uh, Adam and Eve, they were displaced and exiled east of Eden. Abraham was displaced and wandered like, like a vagabond throughout the desert. Israel was exiled to Egypt and also subsequently wandered in the desert for 40 years. Uh, the, the, the major prophets all talk about Israel's deportation or exile to the land of Babylon. In the New Testament, the authors refer to Christians as aliens, strangers, sojourners, and exiles. And of course, who is the greatest exile of all who voluntarily self-exiled themselves from heaven all the way down to earth? It's Jesus. One of the best-selling books of all time in the English language is Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, which also captures this idea of exile as well. And 
When you think about our current situation and circumstances, we too live in exile. We live east of Eden in metaphorical Babylon. And so this is why we live in a world that is broken. It is filled with viruses and disease, racism, inequity, injustice, human trafficking, pollution. The world as we know it is broken east of Eden. But it's not only broken and, and sort of falling apart, but the world that we live in is also increasingly becoming secular uh, as well. Uh, there is little to no social capital in being a Christian today. This is why I'm continually amazed why anyone in our church ever becomes a Christian, particularly in a city like New York because there's very little social capital in identifying yourself as a Christian today. Uh, let me read you something from Glenn Scrivener in a book that is uh, gonna come out in April. By the way, you know, sometimes people ask me what authors I would recommend. Uh, Glenn Scrivener is one of them. He's an Australian that lives in London, but very, uh, his teachings, I believe, are very powerful but accessible. Uh, this book is set to come out in April, but here's a quote from it. He says, today in the West, many consider the church to be dead or dying. Christianity is seen as outdated, bigoted, and responsible for many of society's problems. This leaves many believers embarrassed about their faith and many outsiders wary of religion. So can I ask you a question? Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt kind of like slightly embarrassed or ashamed of associating yourself with this person named Jesus, of identifying yourself as a follower of, of him? And perhaps this is the reason why, this is why sometimes we get excited whenever like a celebrity or famous person, you know, is public about their faith, like Steph Curry or Bieber or, or Carrie Underwood or Kanye West, because it makes us feel a little bit less weird because some of our cultural prophets now identify themselves. This is why you know, we, we, we wanna claim them because we wanna be not seen as these sort of uh, social pariahs. But is there another way for us to sort of be unashamed about our faith in exile? Is there a way for us to have a resiliency with our faith without associating ourselves with celebrities? Uh, and I believe that there is. Uh, there is a way for us to have moxie and gravitas when it comes to our faith. And I think this is where the church and the parachurch in particular, we need to do a better job of forming contemporary followers of Jesus to have you know, gravitas when it comes to our faith. Now, there are a multitude of ways that churches and parachurches can do this in terms of formation uh, as, as fo modern followers of Jesus. But I think the biggest thing that we need to do uh, as a church is that we need to instill within all of you stronger teaching that leads to stronger convictions about what we believe and why we believe it. And so let me jump to verse one of our text today in James. And it begins like this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, usually whenever we, we write something like a letter, we oddly introduce ourselves at the bottom of the letter for some reason. But in ancient times, the author would introduce themselves in the beginning of the letter, in the greetings and salutations. And who is the author of this letter that we see? It is none other than James. Now, who is James? 
James was the half-brother of Jesus. Why is he the half-brother of Jesus? He's the half-brother of Jesus because they shared the same biological mother, Mary, but they did not share the same biological father, Joseph. You have to remember that Jesus was born of a virgin, so this is why they were half-brothers. Nevertheless, because they were brothers, that means that they also grew up together. Chances are they may have shared a bunk bed. James saw his older brother Jesus go through the pimple teenage years, pimple faced teenage years. James, James heard Jesus snoring at night. James and Jesus played baseball together. Jesus was not God for James. For James, Jesus was just his older brother. So naturally, for James, he was a big skeptic of all the things that Jesus was saying, like, I'm the creator of the world, I always existed, I made you, you know, I am the meaning of life. So James was a natural skeptic. In John chapter 7, it's not only James, but his other brothers. Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. James wasn't a servant of Jesus. He was a skeptic of Jesus. So I want you to imagine this scenario for a moment. If Jesus began his public ministry at around the age of 30, and James is his younger brother, chances are James was in his 20s when Jesus begins to go viral. So James is in his young 20s, just beginning his professional career. Let's just imagine for a moment he's at a happy hour event, schmoozing, networking, you know, talking with his colleagues, and, and all of a sudden one of his coworkers comes up to him and goes, hey, is, isn't your brother Jesus? That, that dude that's going viral right now because he's saying all these crazy things like I'm, I'm God and I created the world and all that? Now, if you were James and one of your coworkers came up to you and said that about your brother, how would you feel? Probably a sense of, again, shame, embarrassment about your, your crazy brother saying all these crazy things. And if I can, if I can make a public profession, uh, you know, growing up you know, in the church, one of my personal biggest struggles, and even to, to this day to a certain degree, was, was always being slightly embarrassed of, of being a Christian. Why? Because I want to be accepted by everyone. I want to be liked by everyone. I don't want to be this weirdo, this social pariah that believes in all these different things that, that, that sound totally crazy. Now, 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 now that I'm a pastor, right, and people ask me what I do, and I say I'm a pastor, and they, they look at me weird, I'm, I'm kind of used to it. But for a lot of you, you you're not pastors, and you're in industries where you might be the only Christian. You're in advertising, fashion, engineering, law, uh, uh, finance. And sometimes associating ourselves as a Christian can be a very, very difficult thing to do. Uh, some of you in your families, you might be the only Christian. In your close circle of friends, you might be the only Christian. And so it's, sometimes it can be very difficult to, for us to have a sense of resiliency when, we, when it comes to our faith when we live in exile, a metaphorical uh, Babylon where everything is secular. And yet when we take a look at the life of James, we see that he moves from being a skeptic of Jesus, who does not believe in him, to being a servant of Jesus. In verse 1 again, it says, 
James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question is, how does James go from being a skeptic of Jesus to a servant of Jesus? How does he go from having no faith or fragile faith in Jesus to having a very strong faith and resilient faith, proud faith in Jesus? I want to read you something from 1 Corinthians 15. This is post-resurrection. And it says this, Christ, Paul says this, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. I find that, I find that super interesting because... Jesus could have appeared to anyone, but when you take a look at the laundry list of people that Jesus showed himself up to, it seems like he showed himself and revealed himself post-resurrection to his biggest skeptics, not necessarily his uh, biggest believers. Now, uh, if you're like me, you're, 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 the next thought that you might have is, well, if I saw a dead man rise from the dead, I would believe in him too, right? And I would say, not so fast. Remember Judas Iscariot, the guy that spent every day with Jesus for three years. He saw all the miracles that Jesus performed. Did Judas Iscariot believe? He did not. Remember Pharaoh in Egypt who saw God's hand deliver 10 plagues? Did Pharaoh believe? No, he did not. Sometimes we mistakenly believe in our modern epistemology. Epistemology is just a fancy word of saying, how do we know what we know? Sometimes we make the mistake in our modern epistemology that if something, if we see something on our phones or on YouTube, it, it just means it's true. But just because we see something, it doesn't necessarily lead to belief. And just because we don't see something, it doesn't necessarily lead to unbelief. Okay, and I'll give you an example of this. Uh, there was one day I was praying with my five-year-old daughter, and, um, you know, being the perceptive person that she is, she, she once said to me, but daddy... I can't see God. Where is he? And, uh, and so I'm, I'm sort of like, you know, I'm putting on my pastor hat now because I don't know what to say because that, that is a good question. Where, where is he? And what do I, how do I communicate this to this five-year-old? And so I said, you know, Logan, God is kind of like the wind. Even though you can't see the wind, you can feel the wind. Or have you ever gone fishing? Can you see the fish underneath the water? No, you can't see the fish but you can feel the fish tugging on your line. And similarly, even though we can't see God, we can see him in other ways through our minds and in our hearts as well. This is the power of something called faith. Now, faith sometimes can be looked at as something that is intellectually lazy, but I think that there is something very powerful about the psychology of faith where it is believing in something that we cannot see that makes it so powerful, you see? And so that's why scripture talks over and over about faith and what we see, what we see in this letter is that James wants to infuse a sense of resiliency in their faith, uh, in the people of God's faith because right now what's happening historically is that they are being scattered all over the place. And so read with me the, the rest of one, uh, verse one, where it says this. James says, to the 12 tribes 
scattered among the nations, greetings. That word there that is used for scattered is the word diaspora, which means to sort of just be dispersed. You know, God's people were, were in one locale, and now they're being scattered all over the place because of rampant persecution by people such as Paul, who was a religious terrorist who went hunting after Christians, who ironically went on later to write half the New Testament. And so there's a lot of persecution that's taking place. And so the reason why James is writing this letter, which, which some scholars believe might be the first letter written in the New Testament, the reason why James is writing this letter is because in the midst of the suffering that these scattered people are now facing, in the midst of the suffering, he wants them to have a sense of solidarity about what they believe and why they believe it. That makes the persecution and suffering worth it. And so in verse 2 to 4, he says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That word there that is uh, used, consider, can also be translated welcome or to greet. So what Paul is saying here is to welcome with pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. And that, that's an irony there because why in the world would we welcome that? And, and what, is, what does James mean when he says that we'll, we'll face many kinds, different kinds of trials and temptations? Let me, let me try to give some, some tangible examples to make this a little bit real. Uh, because we know about persecution happening around the world, but sometimes it's a little bit more foreign to our, our sensibilities in the West. Sometimes when we face trials here, it's directly tied to our faith. Sometimes when we face trials here in the West, it's not tied to our faith, but it does test our faith. So let me give some examples of this. Sometimes it's tied to our faith. Over the past two years, I can give you story after story where two lifelong friends are no longer friends because of a disagreement where one person thinks that this particular issue is political while the other person thinks that it's biblical. Lifelong friends, no longer friends anymore because they have different opinions on this. So that's just one tangible example of a trial that you might face because of the convictions that you have biblically. And sometimes it's not tied to our faith, but it, does, it tests our faith, a trial or circumstance that we face. So it could be a rough marriage, it could be a miscarriage, it could be unemployment. These things are not directly tied to our faith, but these trials do certainly test our faith. And sometimes it's a combination of both. Sometimes, let's say, for example, you're, you're dating someone who might not be a Christian, and you've been waiting for years for them to make a profession of faith. But they, in all their honesty, can never get to that point. So now you're left with the question, what do I do with this relationship? And so you're faced with this trial that tests your faith, like, do I, do I stay in this or do I not stay in this? And so we, are, we constantly face trials of many different kinds. But look at what he says here. James says to welcome these trials because these trials produce within us perseverance. Now, this word that is used here for perseverance is more than just withstanding the test of time. Okay, so I want you to imagine for a moment you're tanning on the beach for two hours. 
No one would ever say to you, how did you persevere through that? Because you didn't face any trials or obstacles, right? So the word, word perseverance is more than just withstanding the test of time. It means, it means being resilient in the midst of obstacles. And when I think about the word resilient, it's, it's hard for me not to think about the immigrant community who came here with no money, didn't understand the culture, uh, didn't, didn't know the language. But in the midst of the obstacles that immigrants have faced, there is a sense of resiliency, strength, uh, not, not backing down, uh, a sense of inner fortitude that they have. And so this is, this is what James means when he talks about how trials can give us that moxie or that level of perseverance. Uh, uh, the, what, what does the philosopher Kelly Clarkson say? Uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? What is she doing here? She's paraphrasing James. Uh, the trials that we face give us sort of these uh, antibodies to face the, the tests and, and the difficulties that we face. And the perseverance that we, face, uh, we, we, we gain uh, subsequently, le- subsequently leads to uh, maturity. Now, uh, what does maturity mean here in this, in this uh, context? Uh, one expression that parents and teachers often say to little kids who are immature, and you know, they want them to mature, uh, one expression that parents and teachers often say to, to kids, one thing that we say as well is, Logan and Hayden, we want you to obey right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. We don't want you to obey slowly or with delay or not obey, but we want you to obey right away. And we want you to obey all the way, not just halfway or three quarters of the way, but we want you to obey all the way. And we don't want you to obey with a grumpy heart, but we want you to obey with a happy heart. We want you to obey right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. That's what maturity looks like. And when you think about who Jesus is, That's exactly what he did for us. In Hebrews 12, it says this, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That that word endures the same word for persevere in Greek. He endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider, there's that word again, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When you think about the life of Jesus, he was both loved and he was hated. He was praised and he was cursed. He was worshiped, yet he was killed. Yet in the midst of all of the things, the trials and the tests that Jesus faced, he endured through all of those things. He persevered through all of those things. He had resiliency on moxie. He obeyed right away. He obeyed all the way. And he obeyed with a happy heart, even as he was dying on the cross. And the reason why he did that is because he considered it pure joy. And who was that joy? It was you. This is why he did not feel ashamed to to die the equivalent of, you know, sitting naked on an electric chair in the middle of Times Square which is what a crucifixion was. It was very public. Yet he was unashamed 
to be associated with you. <laughs> Even though he is dying naked on a cross, he's unashamed to be associated with us. And when you think about the resiliency, the perseverance, the enduring love that he has for you, when someone loves you like that, it's very hard not to love them back. You were his joy. And when you realize what he did for you, then, then it gives you the strength and the fortitude to also uh, do it for him. Uh, I mentioned before that when I, when I think about the word resilience, I, I do think about the word, uh, I do think about the immigrant community. And for those of you who have seen the movie Minari, or for those of you who have not seen it, it it's about a Korean family who immigrates to the gardens of Southern California, and then they you know, migrate to the Ozarks of Arkansas. And the reason why this immigrant family does this is because they want to experience a, a better life. But like you know, most immigrant communities, they face a lot of challenges as they, as they make this migration in America. The director, Lee Isaac Chung, who actually used to attend a church here in the city, um, he says this, uh, the direct, he, he's also the writer, he says, of all the texts, of all texts, scripture was most likely the biggest reference for the script. The Bible includes many stories about gardening and farming, and the entire arc of its narrative seems to place key moments of betrayal and redemption within gardens. So think Garden of Eden, Garden of Gethsemane. Minari is a story of immigrants, but at its heart, it's about a family trying to find a new life. They've left one garden and are in search of another. And I, I think here, Lee Isaac Chung does a very good job of, of summarizing what the Bible is about. Garden of Eden to a new garden. That's Genesis to Revelation. But in between Genesis and Revelation, in the in-between, we live east of Eden. In a world that, is, again, is filled with thorns and thistles. You will be hurt as you live in this in-between. But not only will you be hurt, you will also hurt other people. But as we think about our, our experience here in metaphorical Babylon in exile, I like, the, I like what the, uh, the theologian A.J. Swoboda referred to Christians as. He referred to Christians in exile as the dusty ones. Our feet have dust all over it, but the reason why we have dust on our feet is because we are travelers on a pilgrimage. To quote Gandalf, not all who wander are lost. And so as we wander, we know where we're going, even in the midst of the hardships and the difficulties that we face. And one of the things that can give us that resiliency as we wander as pilgrims in this life is not just strong teaching that will lead to strong convictions, but also a strong sense of community as well. That's why he's writing this letter, letter to the scattered 12 tribes, because they're everywhere, but he wants them to have a sense of solidarity in the midst of their, their suffering. And similarly, as we gather here once a week, this village called the church, what are we doing? We're sharing the same identity, we're sharing the same beliefs, we're sharing the same values that you might not find in your firm or company or even in your family. But as we gather here in this village, you have to know that you're surrounded by like-minded people that are also on this journey. You are not alone. 
And so there is a sense in which we really, really do need to prioritize meeting together as we journey through this life, lest we stray and go off on our own journey, which we cannot do by ourselves. I like what the uh, theologian Charles Spurgeon said when he said, I have looked back to times of trial with a kind of longing, not to have them return, but to feel the strength of God as I have felt then. None of us should ever long for testing and trials. We can welcome them when they do come, but we shouldn't long for them. But what Spurgeon does long for is the strength and the resiliency that does come from trials. And so for those of you who are not facing trials and and tests right now, if you're not facing it right now, treat your previous trials and tests, treat them like a little pebble that you put in your shoe to remind you to walk with humility, to walk with a limp, lest you forget all the good things that you can take and extract from your suffering and trials. Don't forget them. And for those of you who are facing trials and and tests right now, uh, one of the things that we often say is to treat suffering like a chauffeur that will bring you back to God. Sometimes there are good things about suffering that can draw us closer and closer to him and not further and further to him, which is why James says again, not to ignore suffering and tests and trials, but to, uh, but to welcome them. The early church did not have Christian celebrities. The early church did not have Christian politicians to vote for. The early church did not have Christian cultural privileges. But what they did have was a firm conviction about what they believe and why they believed it. But they not only had strong teaching, but they had a strong community that they, they could do this life together with as well. So let me, let me just say this in closing as we, um, as we begin 2022, uh, and hopefully it will not be like 2022, uh, but as we begin 2022, uh, my hope and prayer is that we can all have the posture of James, who begins this letter not by saying that he is a younger bro of Jesus, but he begins the letter by saying, James, the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we begin, and as we live in this, this uh, experience called exile, um, and we all have a posture of a servant where we serve one another through all the ups and downs. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, want to thank you in advance for uh, all that this year holds, all the ups and downs, the, the peaks and valleys. Uh, and even though we don't know what this year uh, holds, uh, we do know who holds the future, and, and that is you. In the meanwhile, help us to control the things that we can control. And while we cannot control tests and trials, what we can control is our posture. Uh, and so help us to, to, to consider and to welcome it with pure joy whenever we face trials of many kinds, because we know that these things will produce perseverance, and perseverance maturity. In your name I pray, amen.